If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. So when we're faced with false accusations, let's say someone comes along and says, you know, you've done such and such, and there's no truth behind the accusation, how would we respond? Most of us would defend ourselves, right? We'd have some statement back to say, hey, you know what, that's not true, it's not accurate. Well, how would Paul respond? Well, we find out that he responds in two different ways. In number one, sharing a personal testimony in chapter 21, verse 40, this is the last verse of the chapter, to, verse, to chapter 22, verse 21. And number two, exercising one's rights in, in chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. So let's start with number one, sharing a personal testimony. This is a lengthy passage. We're not going to comment on every single verse, uh, but it's really a recap of Paul's testimony that he gets to share with the Jewish community who is absolutely angry and infuriated with him. Starting verse 40, here's what it says. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, and also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders from whom I have received, I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now what happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go, to Damas go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, 
and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So Paul here is given an opportunity to speak to the people by the commander, by getting cleared to go ahead and do so. Paul proceeds by sharing his personal testimony as a matter of defense. Paul could have defended himself in many different ways, but he decides to go back and recap his testimony to the Jewish audience. Most of us don't think of sharing our testimony with others when falsely accused. But this is exactly what Paul does here. Paul communicates specific things to this crowd here. First of all, he speaks to them, he spoke to them in their own dialect, verses 1 through 2. It simply means that Paul is not trying to be eloquent and impress them as a scholar, but rather by the Holy Spirit, he was led to speak to them in more than likely Aramaic, which would have been the common tongue then. Unfortunately, so many of us, when we're sharing our testimony, try to impress others rather than just simply stating what God has done. He also shared the past, verses 3 through 5. It simply means that Paul gives them the background to his coming to saving faith, in that he was taught as a Pharisee and was just like they were in their Jewish upbringing. He was strict about his Jewish upbringing himself. In fact, Paul goes as far as admitting that he despised Christianity, or the way, to the point of going after the people of faith and imprisoning them and killing them. I know it comes as a shock. Paul had a past. So don't we? Do we not? You see, in fact, Paul said, you can ask the Sanhedrin, they can confirm that I was just as vicious, vicious to Christians as I'm saying that I am. I was. You may not believe me, but you should go and ask them to verify. They'll tell you exactly what I'm saying is true. I was about to arrest more Christians. The truth is, all of us have a past. If we've come to saving faith, we have a past. Now, others may ask questions like, you mean you lived in sin? Yes. You disregarded truth that was presented to you? Yes, and I occasionally still do today. You actually couldn't stand other Christians too? There are many that, are in saving, that have been saved by Christ that used to despise Christianity. Vehemently opposed to Christ and his people. And you became one? See, that's the gospel. Why? I thought you didn't like Christians. You became one? That's many people's testimony. We all have a past, whether we came to saving faith as a younger child or as an older adult. We all have a past. Paul also shared the personal conversion story, verses 6 through 16. 
In fact, Paul made it a point to go through the details of his conversion. How Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and called him out for going after Christians, which was essentially going after Christ himself. Child of God, you need to understand that when the world goes after you, they really are going after God and ultimately Christ. You're his child. And let me tell you and reassure you once again, I know I've mentioned it many times, God knows how to take care of his own. When it seems like we're at the losing end of the spectrum, God always wins at the end. The final victory is in Christ. He will be victorious at the end. You see, Paul was humbled as a man because he needed others to lead him when he was blinded. When he encounters Christ, he's blinded literally, physically. He can't see. And he has to have other men bring him out, out to Damascus for further instructions. This is exactly what happens to every one of us who's finally confronted with our sinful state. Our pride has to get broken. We realize the solution really does not lie in us, but outside of us. It relies in the arms of Christ. That's where it lies. For some reason, we get back to being full of ourselves as Christians sometimes, do we not? Thinking we've arrived in some areas, we're doing better than those around us, pridefully condemning those that don't perform to our standard of holiness. Remember, Christian, where you came from. Remember the sinner you were, and you still are. You have been made a saint solely on the basis of what Christ has done on your behalf. Your performance is still going to be lackluster. This is exactly why Paul has Ananias brought to him to give him further instructions. The truth is God always brings others into our lives to help us guide, guide the path that he has for us. God brings Ananias, a devout Jewish follower of Christ, to Paul. And he shares with Paul the incredible behind the scenes of what he is on this earth for. Paul thought one thing as a zealous Pharisee, God had other plans. Essentially, Ananias tells Paul it is important for him to call on the name of the Lord and be baptized. God always brings people into our lives who share the gospel message with us. And most of us, it's not the first encounter with the gospel message that brings us to saving faith. It takes many encounters with that, and finally, some moment occurs in our lives where we finally see it for what it is. The dead heart that's beating now has life. What is incredible is that Ananias is given insight into who Paul will be, and he shares that with him. He tells Paul God has chosen him for the ministry of the gospel, and that God has given us that same ministry as well, believer. You may not have the testimony of Paul, but you still have a testimony. And God has worked in your life, and he wants you to share that with others. You see, some people say, well, you know what, I, 
I got saved when I was younger. I don't really have much of a testimony. Has God worked some things out in your life as you've matured and gotten older? It's not that God stopped working before you became a believer. God has continually worked even as you're a Christian, even as you've been a disciple. You may have encountered some things the last couple years that are a powerful testimony that you're just not willing to share. There's no perfect testimony. There's no template for what a testimony should be according to Scripture. There's just a testimony of God changing sinful man into a saint. God working in a person's life to bring him to saving faith. All of those things that he's rescued you from, and even the current struggles you may have, was always meant to point others to him. Listen, believer, you live a good life because God is good. You're fighting sin because he's already won. You love God because he first loved you. It's all grace. Church, it's all undeserved, and it will always be undeserved. Stop acting like you've paid anything back by fighting sin. The debt's been paid in full by Christ. You're just the beneficiary by faith. Paul also shared his calling in verses 17 through 21. Paul shares his encounter with the risen Christ and the call to go reach the Gentiles with the gospel. You see, Paul received this call from Christ directly. Paul learned to trust the guidance of God in his life to the point of doing exactly what it is that God called him to do. You see, one of the difficulties for so many in the church is they're not sure of their calling. I would argue that every believer's calling when tied to Christ is to make him known. Paul's calling as an apostle was to make Christ known to the Gentiles. Your calling as a parent is to make Christ known to your children. Your calling as an employee is to make Christ known to your coworkers. Your calling as a teacher is to make Christ known to your students. Your calling as a leader is to point others to Christ. Every one of us has a different calling, but each calling is ultimately to point others to Christ. That's the end goal. Paul is sharing his heart with these people, but as soon as he mentions that God has called him to the Gentiles, the crowd is angry at him once again. And as he's about to be punished, Paul chooses to exercise his rights as a citizen of Rome. Number two, exercising one's rights. Verses 22 through 29 in chapter 22. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. 
And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. What's absolutely stunning is that Paul, as he's proclaiming to these Jewish people that he's going to minister to the Gentiles, they prove Paul's point that God had called him to the Gentiles in opposing his message to them. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted nothing to do with Paul. They wanted him dead. As soon as Paul mentions that he was simply doing what God has called him to do in preaching to the Gentiles, the infuriated Jewish audience stopped patiently listening to him. They were so offended that God would deem the Gentiles somehow worthy without becoming Jewish in practice. Church, we need to be very careful that we don't deem others unworthy because they don't practice as they should before they're believers. Your goal isn't to bring somebody into the church and ask them to behave as a Christian before they're a Christian personally. You need the Spirit to work in their lives. They don't need to practice the way you do before they've come to saving faith. In fact, many of us have been reached with the gospel multiple times before we responded in faith. In a sense, these people were wanting to crucify Paul as the crowd wanted Jesus. Away with him. He's teaching blasphemy. Paul's going against all that's sacred in the Jewish heritage by including the Gentiles as if they were somehow to share in the privileges that we have. Ultimately, how can they share in our privileges if they don't become a Jew first? It's apparent that these people were not just a little upset with Paul, they were furious with him. Paul is taken privately to the commander to be examined further. Through the method of scourging, which would be their equivalent of waterboarding. Listen to what John MacArthur says about this. Scourging by the Roman flagellum, a wooden handle to which were attached, leather thongs tipped with bits of metal and bone, was a fearful ordeal from which men frequently died, from loss of blood or infection. Jesus endured it before his crucifixion. Such a beating would have surpassed anything Paul had previously experienced. In preparation, the guard stretched him out with thongs to make his body taut and magnify the effects of the flagellation. What's amazing here is that Paul had mentioned previously 
to the brethren that he was willing to even die for the sake of the gospel. Right? So you would think that Paul would have just submitted to the process here. Remember, this is the same Paul that wrote Romans 13 about submission, right? Submission to those that are in authority. In fact, let's go ahead and read that. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Acts, Romans, be the next book right over. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor." Now, a couple of points to make in this text. Number one, we are called to submit to governing authorities. It's clearly spelled out right in the beginning. Number two, the authorities are placed there by God. Number three, resistance to God-ordained authority is going against God and will result in punishment. That's what's clearly spelled out here. Number four, Rulers are not to punish the good, but evildoers. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices what? Evil. Number five, we are to submit to authority not just to avoid punishment, but as a matter of conscience which is an area many Christians decide to punish one another over because their conscience is different than someone else. So here's the question. Knowing all these things that Paul spells out, because the governing authorities are to go against those that do evil. What happens when good is punished and evil is praised? What happens when good is punished and evil is praised? Is this still a matter of submission? I mean, none of us really like to pay taxes, but they need to be paid so that we have a government, right? Paul is stating in Romans that we are to give others what is due them and honor to those it's due in authority. It's important to think through what he says. When the authority God has ordained goes against God's standard, it is not to be submitted to in those areas. 
Well, wait a second, Pastor Roman, it says to submit. Well, if you've done any reading in the Bible, you know that not every time government asks for something did people submit to and obey. In fact, the Hebrew midwives honored God by not submitting to killing the Hebrew baby boys. That's in Exodus chapter 1. Daniel also continued praying with his window open, though he was told to stop. And by the way, it was only for 30 days. The, the actual edict was only for 30 days. Come on, Daniel, just stop praying for 30 days. You can do it. Just don't make this a scene. Well, Daniel, you could pray in private, right? Don't let anybody see you. Just, just keep it to yourself. God knows. Nope. Daniel opens the windows, just as he always does. It doesn't take them long to get him in trouble. They're in the lion's den. This is why, church, we will never shut down this church again. Anyone that wants to gather should be able to gather, regardless of whether government says they can or can't. The government has no authority over the worship of God, and they never should. We're going to go into this in a little more depth. In case those that are watching online think I'm off my rocker here. God has established different spheres of authority. Number one, he's established the family. Number two, the church. And number three, the state. When either one of these spheres of authority crosses into the others, although there may be some intersect if you're a member of the church and you have your own family raising, there may be an abuse of authority and a loss of jurisdiction. Let me explain. If a family in the church is telling the rest of the church how it should operate, that could be an abuse of authority. If a church is telling the family how they're to raise their kids, that can constitute a, a case of abuse of authority. If a government is telling the church how to worship and how to raise their families, that's an abuse of authority. Each one of us needs to understand its own jurisdiction and the sphere of influence that that authority has. For example, me being a citizen of the United States, I have certain rights I would have never had in Ukraine. But neither government should tell me how I should raise my children and what church I should go to. That's not up to them to decide. Nor should I go about demanding everyone parent the way I parent simply because I say so. It's not my jurisdiction. It's not my authority. The government doesn't need my permission to gather for a vote on the bill. Last time I checked, they didn't check in with us last week, right? Hey, uh, what do you think? Citizen so-and-so? Should we gather for a vote on this bill? They don't need our permission. It's not our jurisdiction. For a government that cares so much about everyone's health, they sure haven't encouraged much exercise during this pandemic, though, have they? Listen to what Francis Schaeffer says, commenting on Romans 13. There are better men than me that have thought through this process. 
The state is to be an agent of justice, to restrain evil by punishing wrongdoers, and to protect the good in society. When the state does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then a usurped authority, and as such, it becomes lawless and is tyranny. When they overstep their boundaries, they're to be called out. And the way our representative government works, we need to vote those people out. Any of those that abused their authority. So when the debate comes up, when it comes to Romans 13, you are to submit every time. I'd also like to point to other texts and see if that really fits what is presented. And if we should give people unlimited authority in all circumstances and unconditional submission as well. Let's start with one that's very familiar to those of us that have heard this in the church. Wives in submission to husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. We're going to read from the New Living Translation on this. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Wow. In everything. What do we mean by everything? That means if they tell me to commit a crime, I should just do it because I need to submit to my husband? Is that what we mean by everything? Of course not. You mean if he just tells me to do something against Scripture, defraud others, abort a baby, do something that I'm not comfortable with doing in my conscience, I'm just to submit and do it? Even if it violates my conscience? Of course not. Because if the husband's loving like Christ, he will be sacrificial and not abusive. That's the qualifier there, is that man is to be loving like Christ, and that's why you should submit to him. If that man's not loving like Christ, there are areas you should never submit, period. Particularly if he's violating God's word. Scripture is the standard in this case. Not just his desires and wants, and the conscience of the wife is to be taken into account. As God tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. In fact, God's word says that if a husband doesn't live with his wife in an understanding way, he doesn't want to hear from him. This is when you need to take all of scripture and build your case. Instead of taking one verse out of context and build a horrible theology that a lot of people do. Well, it just says submit, so just do whatever. If the government tells you to hop on one leg for 50 times a day, it's required. Just do it. Anything they tell you to do, go ahead and do. Is that what we've really defined as submission now? A lot of Christians have absolutely not thought through what Scripture says because they don't care to cross-reference passages of Scripture. The same Paul that's writing that is actually speaking up in his defense, and we're going to get to that in a moment. What about children in submission to parents? Colossians 3, verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So it says, 
All things, does that mean instances where children are told to lie about something mom and dad don't want anybody else to know about? Does this mean that if a, a parent tells them to cheat on a test, the child should just go ahead and do it? Of course not. All things have a limitation based on the standards of Scripture and the sphere of authority that that person possesses. For example, if a teacher allows an open book test, it's fine. But if a parent helps their child cheat, it's wrong. You see, we as citizens of this country have a certain Bill of Rights that applies to all of us as American citizens, whether you are in the government or not. When those rights are violated, we have every right to respectfully stand against them as Paul does back in Acts chapter 22. So turn back there in Acts chapter 22. I want you to notice something in verse 25. In Acts chapter 22. As he's about to be beaten and scourged, the typical Christian response today would be, Paul, submit. You broke the sacred law of the Jews. Just submit to your punishment now. You've insulted the government. Now take your beating. Paul waits until the very last possible moment to ask the question, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? That simple statement spoke volumes to the centurion. The centurion that's about to beat him has to quickly bring that up to the commander. After asking Paul himself, the commander admits he more than likely bribed somebody to get his own citizenship. Whereas Paul comes right out and says, I was born a Roman citizen. You see, if Paul was lying about his citizenship, it was instant death for him. They didn't have to go through all these beatings, they just execute him right on the spot. But this put the commander in a difficult situation. Because they're about to flog him without charging him for any crime as a Roman citizen. He comes up with another strategy, as Pilate did. I'm going to bring Paul back to the Jews and have them deal with him. Let the Jewish people decide what to do with him. So much can be learned here from the Apostle Paul in his testimony exercising of his rights. When given the opportunity to speak, Paul took the chance. When met with resistance, he used his rights as a citizen available to him, knowing full well that the law still applied to those who were going to unjustly punish him. Which is why it's important that we have just people that will execute laws. So in conclusion, church, are you willing to speak? Are you willing to speak? Have you been given opportunities by others to share your testimony? Have you shared with them what God has done on your behalf? Or are you just neglected to do so? Ah, oh, you don't know. My testimony is not all that incredible. 
I grew up in the church. You've still sinned, right? Yes. God's still kept you away from a lot of things that others have gotten into that were dangerous. Yes. You've got a testimony. See, most of us think testimonies are only the ones where it's incredible. I was in a street gang. I almost I got in trouble, was in jail for five years, and that's the only testimony that matters. Everyone has a testimony because every single one of us has been brought from death to life. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Your testimony is different from someone else's, but similar enough to relate to those that are living apart from God. It doesn't matter the age in which the gospel reached you, it's a supernatural miracle. And you need to know that. If you haven't trusted Christ, if you haven't had that conversion experience, if you will, today could be the day that you bow before Christ in faith and repentance. Understanding the depths of your personal depravity, you have nothing and can give nothing to please a holy God. Not a single one of your Christian friends can give anything to God to deserve his grace. All of us are unworthy, equally. You see, God sent Jesus on your behalf to suffer, going through the beating that Paul himself was spared of. Your life can and will change if you meet Christ and accept him for who he is, on his terms, not yours. Now, maybe you're the type that you've just tried to kind of stick your head in the sand. You don't really want to deal with any of the craziness of this world. You don't have a care to speak up for anything because you just don't want to be labeled as anything. My question to you is this, is how is this going to affect those that you take care of right now? If you're a parent and you're not speaking for them that can't speak right now, who's going to speak on their behalf? While you have the rights given to you as an American citizen, use them for the benefit of the gospel as well. We have an opportunity right now in this country to still share the gospel freely. That door will not always be open. And the ability to raise your family in the fear of the Lord. Now while given the opportunity to speak, use it to defend those that mean the most to you. You're not doing it just for yourself. Do it for those that matter to you. Why do I research? Why do I read so much about what's coming down the line? It's because I care about the church that God's called me to pastor. Why do I research what's going on in other Christian schools? Because I care about the school God's given us. Why do I work so hard to make sure that our church is in the Word of God? because I realize that that is the only thing that'll keep us steady when everything goes crazy. Don't be known as the Christian who only fought for their rights because they only thought of themselves. Think of those who can't speak for themselves yet and realize that if you've been given authority over those children that God's given you, it's your responsibility to speak out on their behalf. It's your responsibility to stand up for those that God has placed under your authority. When others come into the church and they try to tell us how to do things and when we should gather, it's our responsibility as those that are leaders in this church to call them out on that and say we're not. 
Simply put, as Jesus himself said, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's.